0: Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 27. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me is the legendary Mitchell Davis.
2: Hey, I'm a legend. How's it going?
1: (laughs) It's going good, man. Uh, Looking forward to talking about some cool music this week. And uh, this week we have uh, another, well, our last Brahms CD. Uh, Last time we had several that we talked about. This is the last one in the book, his piano concerto number two. Then we're going to move on to Anthony Braxton, his album for Alto. Then the group Bright Eyes, their album, I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning. And uh, after that, following that, another opera that we're talking about: uh, Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes. And hello, telephone. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, um, <laughs> finally, we're gonna uh, end with the young Big Bill Brunsy. Uh, re- released in 1992, but uh, recordings from the late twenties, uh up through the mid thirties of uh yeah, that Chicago blues artist, but big Bill Brunsey. So yeah, let's start with uh Brahms. Johannes Brahms, our last uh C D of his. And you know, last time we talked a lot about Brahms personally, you know, a lot of personal stuff and background. So we won't get into that. Uh really as much on this show if you want to um, hear that go back and listen to the last episode but uh, this album of his piano concerto number two in b-flat major opus 83 uh, with uh, Sviatoslav Richter on piano uh, with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra conducted by Eric Leindorf and um, this was released in 1961 Uh, apparently he spent several years writing this piece from 1878 to 1881. And the piece was premiered in Budapest on November 9th, 1881 with Brahms as soloist. So that's, that's kind of one thing that I've, you know, I've listened to a lot of Brahms and stuff over the years and have a lot of pieces that I like. And we, we even talked about, uh, both of us have, have actually sung Brahms in choirs. Yep. Over the years. Um, and, uh, but I never knew he was such a performer. I knew he was a pianist, you know, and, and I knew he was a conductor. But reading about all these pieces and, you know, all these pieces we've been talking about, it seems like every single one that involves piano, Brahms himself played mm-hmm. and premiered. Um, and this is no easy piece. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, a, it's a v- very long for a concerto. It's about 50 minutes. Hmm. That's 5 I didn't say 15. It's 5-0 yeah. minutes, uh, which is very long for a concerto. Um, and, uh, it, you know, that's like symphonic length. And, you know, to be playing virtuoso piano for 50 minutes, you know, that's got to take it out of you.
2: Yeah, I mean, lots of talent, but, but a durable talent where, he, you know, he's going to play... This whole thing, like Yaki said for almost an hour. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd imagine he's he's got to be beat, you know. Every time he does it, I mean, you know, and the, I guess we, the, looking at it, the first when he did the first piano concerto, there was a 22 year gap, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Where you know he just he took so long, you know. So I guess when he when he lays it out, I mean, he lays it out, you know. Full on, where it's it's just a, a massive piece, you know, and I, I I can't imagine sitting and playing. I mean, especially playing something like this for a whole hour, you know, this is crazy.
1: Yeah, well, it's also customary, you know, for the soloist to have all this stuff memorized. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, to memorize all this music, and you know, it's a it's a major thing, you know, for any player. Uh, any soloist Uh, and and Sviatoslav Richter just does an amazing job on this uh, CD you know his range of expression is just huge that he brings to this piece Um, and uh, we're going to start with an excerpt from the first movement his Allegro Non troppo movement which uh, he seems to give that performance indication to a lot of his music you know, we heard a lot of allegro non tropos last time, and uh, yeah. So this particular uh, excerpt that I pulled, you know, it features these little cadenza-like passages. Um, I could I've talked about what a cadenza, excuse me what a cadenza is before, but uh, they're just little soloistic passages here, and the piano the performance of the piano is just like liquid and and like crystalline you know in these uh in these sections you know it's almost like the the biggest most badass music box you've ever seen Mm -hmm. kind of um but yeah i mean the music itself is you know kind of wistful contemplative and profound sort of all at once um what did you think of this well
2: it 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 just it it has a moments like you said where it, it, it just comes off you know so fluid and and so clean and then it has moments where it, it it just it's just whirling and 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 dramatic and uh i mean it's and it's a long long piece i mean uh, i mean if i'm thinking about the right one i mean it, it's just it had so many different movements to it or so many different styles to it. Um
1: Yeah, yeah, this this first move <clears throat> Excuse me, this first movement alone was like like over 16 minutes. Yeah, 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 I mean,
2: there's so much going on, you know, from beginning to end. I mean, you know, just he, he was he was quite a virtuoso, I guess if if that's the right word where he Yeah. <clears throat> he had so much going on inside of him. I mean, just a, an amazingly talented guy. I mean, you know, not just, you know, composer, but, but piano player as well. You know, I mean, I I would, I would say even underestimated by, you know, most where, I mean, the guy was just brilliant, you know, to to be able to, like you said, to, to sit down and, and from memory, you know, just have this music flow from, you know, right off the top of his head. I mean, I guess you know when you live music and 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 that's what you do. I mean, you know, it 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 is kind of comes naturally, but still, to me, I'm just like amazed that he could, you know, just put it down like that, so to speak.
1: Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, well, let's check this out and see what we're getting into. Uh, this is excerpt from the first movement of Brahms Piano Concerto Number Two, the Allegro non troppo. And we just heard an excerpt from the first movement of piano concerto number two of Brahms. And we're going to move on to an excerpt from the second movement, the Allegro Appassionato, um, which means sort of fast and passionately. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in this excerpt that I pulled, uh, you really get to hear the orchestra shine here. I mean, before we heard a lot of piano. With kind of orchestra accompaniment. But here we can hear a section where it really features the orchestra, but kind of the piano too. I mean, the piano and orchestra are kind of partners here, you know, equal partners. Um, Well, you could, I don't know, you could either see them as partners or you could see them as combatants, I think, here. Um, Sort of one playing off the other, but both sort of equally present. Uh, which is not always the case, you know, since, since this is a piano concerto, a lot of times the piano is taking center stage, and the orchestra is sort of, you know, in the background. But here, both are in the foreground, and uh, you really get to hear Brahms, not only his writing for piano, but, you know, his great ability to write for orchestra, and his orchestration, and his ability to sort of balance these two things with each other, the piano soloist and the orchestra, um... What did you think of this?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Just it's another great example of the way, as a composer, he was able to kind of have the chemistry between, you know, the piano and and the rest of the orchestra, you know, in a in a balanced manner where they they don't, you know, sort of, you know, overlap one another or or or, or kind of clash with one another. You know, they the, there's a good blend where you know they're their equal parts are important, you know, and, and, and not the same, but, but, but helping the, in the whole of the composition, you know, which like we were kind of talking about, I guess last week is, is not all that easy. Um, usually, you know, one is is going to be dominant over the other normally, but not here. It seems like they both, you know, blend very well, you know, as far as, you know, you know, piano parts and, and then the rest of the symphony and, with with their parts, I mean it, it. It just comes across as as if you know they, you know they they're both very very integral to the whole piece. So
1: yeah, 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 yeah. I mean yeah, we did kind of talk about that last week about Brahms's ability to balance things, and it's even more so here. I mean you can see his. Uh, you used the word virtuoso earlier. You know his his virtuoso composition chops, which basically are orchestration where. Uh, he's he's able to really have this full orchestra sound and this piano sound and never have the piano be covered or blown away, which is always a danger in a concerto like this because even though piano can be a powerful instrument, man, I mean, when it's up against a full orchestra, you know, the full orchestra has, has easily the ability to just blow it into nothing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, it, this is a, a real just compositionally speaking, a, a real uh, skillful section to hear. But, but yeah, and also exciting. You know, I, I listen to this music, and, you know, if you listen to it, especially if you go through the whole concerto, you know, you can hear, like, so much fodder for film scores in this music, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, <laughs> you know, you can just hear, like, the influence it had on Uh, film composers of the 20th century and all this stuff that we hear now in films and television movie soundtracks and music that we're used to uh associating with certain images and certain actions going on on screen and stuff it it all started back here you know yeah
2: i think the book mentions john barrymore and you know you you think of a lot of other film composers that probably were were influenced by by Brahms on on a very, very heavy scale. So yeah. And I mean he just like you said, I mean he he just had a mind before, you know, films filming process and and the scoring process was set up the way, you know, we traditionally I guess see it now. I mean, he was already there, you know. And I imagine, I mean, he just he probably just had this mind where he, you know, would I guess, you know, sort of compose things and then would see you know certain scenes even in his head to give him a certain feeling for a certain sound i imagine that that probably could have been the case with, yeah. with brahms yeah you know big time
1: yeah dude I, i'm sure it was um so yeah let's check this out this final track from johannes brahms from his uh, piano concerto number two in b-flat major opus 83 this is the allegro appassionato <laughs> Just heard the Allegro Passionato, Brahms Piano Concerto Number Two. I'm going to move on to uh, something totally different.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Anthony Braxton, uh, his album for alto released in 1969, and uh, this was, from what I read, the the first full length album for solo alto saxophone mm. um, ever. Yeah. Wow. Um, and uh they they said they cited you know some examples of some other jazz musicians that had some s- uh pieces for solo saxophone on their albums but the entire album wasn't just solo sax by
2: by itself yeah. yeah
1: yeah um yeah anthony braxton's a, an interesting guy i mean um interesting very multi-dimensional artist and thinker and uh, philosopher and musician. Um, you know, he, he's often been sort of under fire from the jazz establishment. Um, a lot of them sort of not quite sure what to think about him. Um, yeah. You want to say something?
2: Well, he, he definitely from, from what I would, would gather. I mean, he he definitely will, will push the boundaries of of what is and isn't acceptable as as jazz music. I mean, you know, I mean his expression in and some of, of what I listen to, um it is totally some of it is totally abstract. Um kind of reminds me of, of like what John Zorn does at times where I mean he just I mean he he just lays it out. I mean, it doesn't even sound as if, you know, he has any, any notion at times of which which direction he's going to go, but it's, it's always a strong statement in what he's doing, you know? And, uh, and I guess, you know, when, when you have, you know, people that, that make jazz music, especially back, back when this is, you know, first coming out, I mean, you know, some people probably were like, you know, this isn't music at all. This is, it's just noise. It's just a guy wailing. But, but what a wail. I mean, the guy, <laughs> you know, you hear so much emotion in what he does. I mean, somebody too, that, that kind of reminds me of that is at, at my times, Miles Davis. I mean, Miles Davis would just, he could just hit one note sometimes and and it had so much more expression than someone who sat and, and, you know wrote a composition that you know was so integral and i mean to me sometimes it can be just about the spirit and that's that's what anthony braxton seems to bring to music is a is a true spirit a free spirit for sure um oh yeah where he he just he's just playing sounds like to me like a lot of times he's just playing what he feels you know forget the notes forget you know the structure let's just go you know uh-huh
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, uh yeah, definitely. I mean, he he and he came up in that uh in that time. You know, like I said, this was released in nineteen sixty nine, so a time of great freedom and great expression in music. I think much more so than now. Um yeah. and where a lot of that stuff was really embraced and and uh just accepted, you know, by by people and record labels and you know they're willing to sort of put out stuff like this I don't think you know I don't think a record label would touch this now yes you know? and speaking of the the
2: label that he was signed to at the time delmark I, I didn't know this before I started reading on on him is that they they were the oldest or they are, they are the oldest American jazz label you know, Period. I mean, Delmark apparently was one of the first, hmm. you know, if not the first American jazz label to put out jazz records. I, I mean, I that was something that was new to me. And I mean, they apparently the, the guy who started the label uh, was in Missouri or St. Louis when he first started. And I guess they migrated to Chicago. Um, and I mean, they were I mean, they were at the forefront, I guess, of of this movement.
1: Huh. <clears throat> yeah, interesting. I didn't know that. Excuse me. <laughs>
2: and um, you know, I I just um am am very impressed with uh like you said his his approach and his and his mindset, the way um he even, you know, dedicates some of the the tunes to to certain people and I mean just, you know, you know, very very interesting uh very interesting record, especially to just have it where it's just him and his saxophone and nothing else. I mean, no piano, no drum, um, no effects, just, like I said, just Anthony, you know, just wailing, getting down. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're going to start with this piece to composer John Cage. And uh, like you said, um, all the pieces on this album are all dedicated to different people that, I think either Braxton worked with and respected or people that influenced him or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I
2: mean exactly with the the title of this composition. I mean, John Cage is someone who, you know, was probably very like minded with him where, you know, he was he was totally, you know, in a mindset where he wanted to sort of be free of of labels and structure, and 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 was just intent on in creating, you know, you know something new, you know something I guess even avant-garde, you know, very different, you know something that would kind of, I mean, he would either kind of be like, okay, this is really interesting and and wild and different, or man, this is like some of the worst garbage I've ever heard. I mean. <laughs> That could yeah. have been very deliberate on on his part, on on John Cage's part. I mean, you know, they 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 definitely seem to have a a kinship in in their their spirit and their direction of how they made music. I, I would think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, definitely. I mean, John Cage. I won't go into too much about John Cage, but he was uh, also, you know, a, a philosopher and a composer and, and an artist in the 20th century. But his Philosophies about music and art were incredibly pervasive across a lot of different disciplines in the 20th century. Not just music, but in the visual arts and in theater, oh, and, yeah. and uh, you know a lot of stuff. And he influenced a lot of artists um, during that time. And uh, you know, I was listening to this piece to composer john cage and you know on first listen it sounds totally random it sounds totally completely random but you know when i started listening to it multiple times um you know sometimes when you listen to something or 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 look at something that's chaotic and you look at it long enough you can start to to find some order in it Uh uh-huh uh, and and here, you know, what I noticed is that there's a a fundamental pitch that Braxton sticks to, and he never goes below. So he'll mm-hmm. always do this like like really chaotic stuff high in his in his horn. Sometimes, you know, way up in the stratosphere of the instrument, but he'll always come back down to this low E. Excuse me. So it'll be like all this crazy stuff, and then it'll be. <laughs> he's always coming back to that low E Mm. and he never goes below that low E. So it serves as like this grounding pitch almost. And it's really interesting. Once you, once you realize that that's what's going on here, it's interesting to hear how, you know, the traject, the trajectories of the lines, like how he rises and falls and, and um, plays with this fundamental pitch, you know, and sometimes he makes you think that he's, you know, going back down to it, but then he'll, you know, subvert that and go somewhere else. Kind of like, you know, we were talking about Brahms subverting musical expectation last week. That's kind of what Braxton's doing here. Mm -hmm. You know, when he sets up this fundamental pitch and uh, it's sort of like a tonal center that he sets up. So it really gives a sort of ground to all this chaos that's going on. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah. Let's see. That's, I mean, that's something I didn't notice. I mean, you know, and very interesting to think, you know, it's it's not just, you know, a man just, you know, like you said, like you were saying, just wild and and just playing whatever. He he actually has a uh, you know, a a, a set, you know, idea of, of what he's doing, even though we may not, you know, catch it right at first, you know. And uh but it's it it's it's radical in a sense to where it's not like anything, you know, you may have heard, I guess. Or ever seen before, you know, Um, because the guy, I mean, he obviously can play, even though at times his his playing seems, you know, you know, somewhat somewhat radical. But, you know, I, I would I would guess when you're in the music business or you're a musician and people are constantly trying to, you know, make your music or, or make even who you are sort of like a commodity, uh, you know, or, or a certain type or, or whatever that can just be so frustrating and stifling. I mean, and, and this kind of music can be sort of like the, the reaction to that, um, in a way to where it's like, you know what, you're, you're, you're not going to put me on a shelf like a box of tide. You know, I'm, I'm better than that, so, uh, and <laughs> I, like I, I have a like tremendous, a <laughs> yeah, I mean, because really, I mean, come on, you know, record labels, they they so want to to figure out who you are and how they can market you, because if they can't do that, they feel like, a lot of them feel like they just have no use for you. I mean, some record labels will will get out there and take chances and, and just, you know, hey, you know what, let's just see what happens, you know, we're going to just put this out, if it works, great. If it doesn't, oh well, we tried, you know. And yeah. then some are just—I mean, they're like assembly lines, <laughs> you know, where everything has to sound like so and so. And I mean, I mean that could drive you crazy. So I mean, to me, this is just a a great example of someone who, you know, definitely wanted to do music on their own terms. Whether you you like his statement or not, I mean, he's he's definitely not not a box of tide. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's an, that's an interesting point you bring up. You know, I read uh, Frank Zappa's autobiography and he talks about that, uh, very issue in there. Like during this time, you know, the late sixties, mm. um, there were a lot of people at record labels who were willing to just say, Hmm, well, that's this is kind of interesting. Let's just put it out and see what happens.
2: Yeah, I, he, I think I read that. I did.
1: Yeah, and he makes the point that if he would have come up in the late '80s or early '90s, that he his band wouldn't have been signed, mm. you know, to a label because the labels just aren't willing to take that kind of risk anymore. Yeah, um, and that's,
2: that's that's a great example of someone who was who was totally not into being labeled as Frank Zappa, uh, extraordinarily yeah. talented, but just had so many ideas in his head. There was there was no way you could label what Frank Zappa you know because he he could be several different things at once you know on stage with with the Mothers of Adventure I mean they had they had all kinds of stuff going on I mean it was it was bananas I mean it could be classical it could be rock and roll it could be jazz it could be funk you know
1: Uh it could could be be even like musical theater yeah
2: it it literally it was I mean with with Frank would talk and And I mean, his sense of of humor as well and and his, I mean, his disdain for, you know, things in society, so to speak. I mean, I mean, Frank was, I mean, he he scared the hell out of record labels for the most part, (laughs) I imagine.
1: um. Well, let's check this out. This um, this first track from Anthony Braxton. This is To Composer John Cage. (laughs) we just heard to composer John Cage and we're going to listen to his piece to artist Murray DePillers. and I didn't look up who Murray De pillars is yeah I should have done that <laughs> but um, I picked this piece because it's really a stark contrast to composer John Cage um, yeah. you know this piece is Uh, way less frantic, you know, than the other one. A lot more lyrical, sort of focus on these sort of lyrical, longer lines, uh, focusing on uh, really kind of individual pitches almost at times, like you were talking about when you compared him to Miles Davis. And um, there's some really just beautiful tone in this piece. A lot of sort of trilling and tremolos where he sort of, you know, goes really... fast back and forth between two pitches. Um, that seems to be a sort of motif almost in this mm-hmm. piece. Uh, so, yeah. What did you think of this one?
2: Well, again, like, like you were saying, just, you know, just kind of really, really stark difference. First of all, from the previous track and, you know, very nice, even beautiful tones. Um, you know again just great free expression um you know not not typical of, of anything in in jazz i imagine that was going on at the time um seemingly almost at times you know i wouldn't say lacking structure but not not the typical structure you would hear in 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 jazz music uh the typical arrangement um and and just uh one one of those things that that I again, like I said, I, I I love about him is is the fact that he he you know he can play. You mean the 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 spirit of of what he's doing and the sound of the way he plays is it just totally comes out whether or not you you like you know like music that that has you know toll harmony or music without harmony. I mean the it's undeniable that the guy has. Has has major skills, you know, in in the way he plays. I mean, it, it's it's not typical, like I said, of of you know traditional jazz, if you would, but but still, I mean, you know, very very skilled player, um, and and just you know so unique. Like I said, I mean, the only the one person that comes to my mind, because I mean, there are other people, you know, kind of Archie Shepp is like that too, where you know his his tone can be somewhat, you know out there you know and and then he can kinda come back and and you know get back down on the ground and and be like, okay you know this is this is more of, of what I'm used to and and I imagine this this is kinda like him you know as as closer to the ground as as most people would expect you know regular jazz to be but still you know different you know in, in his own vein of making music um, Mm-hmm. and uh just i i really really am, am just grateful to to have you know discovered this track or this album through the book you know just you know really interesting i want to go back and look at delmark's history too and and look at some of the other artists on that label um you know just just a really good find
1: yeah 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 i mean that's really interesting about the label i didn't like even pay attention to that part of it so <laughs> that's uh a- that's cool man that you brought that up. So let's um let's listen to this. This last track from Anthony Braxton. This is to artist Murray DePillars. And we just heard Anthony Braxton to artist Murray DePillars. And we're going to move on to uh, something else completely different from from that. (laughs) Uh, Bright Eyes, Uh, their album, I'm Wide Awake. It's Morning, released in 2005. And Bright Eyes really is uh, the sort of project of singer-songwriter Connor Oberst um, from Omaha, Nebraska. And, uh, you know, this is not really definitely in that folk rock tradition or or sometimes just straight up sort of folk. Um, and, uh, you know, I have to say, you know, these tunes, uh, especially the, the, the two that we're going to play. I mean, they, they really kind of grew on me the more I listened to them. Um, yeah. I,
2: I agree. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I, I think, um, and, and someone uh uh originally earlier this week posted something on our you know our, our wall and on our facebook wall the thing about him about connor when you can get past his voice because he kind of has a whiny voice um and start listening to his, his lyrics because i mean you know he's he's definitely an amazing songwriter um like you said the songs begin to grow on you and and the the folk jangle, if you will, of the music also begins to grow on you. And you listen to some of the instruments that are going on with the tracks. And I, I, I totally agree with you on that subject. It, it is music that after you kind of, kind of start getting into it, um, you know, it, it all begins to, to kind of cling to you like, Hey, you know what? This is pretty good.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I felt. And and you know, we've talked about this on the show before where I think both of us sort of approach things from the musical side first. And uh, mm-hmm. so when I heard this and I mean, I, you know, I liked it um, musically, you know, I thought, okay, you know, this is, this is all right. But I wasn't, it wasn't really blown away by it, you know, but yeah, then no. as I started to listen to it more and I, I started to really listen to his lyrics, which he's, he's a fantastic lyricist. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, you know, the, more times I'd listen to it. Each time I listened to it, I heard something I didn't hear before. And, uh, I really like the, the mix of instruments. Like you said, I really love the trumpet in the music and how it's used. That's kind of unusual. You don't really hear trumpet in this kind of music very often. No, no. And, uh, yeah, it just really, you know, each time I was like, you know, I, I, I dig this. I'm, I'm digging this, you know?
2: Yeah. He, he's a self-described anti singer and uh he feels as though even though he you know singing is is important it's not near as important as his words he feels like the the lyrics are are the center of of all the things that that he does i mean that's where everything starts and then everything comes from there and then even um i think some of the tracks on on this record uh uh, emily harris who you know has a a lovely voice she kind of you know you know, leans in with him and and harmonizes, you know, as well as as can and 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 you know makes it, you know, a lot more melodic. I guess if you know, than it would be where it was just him. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. He kind of reminds me. I, I mean, obviously Bob Dylan is, a, is the first person that comes to mind, but Neil Young too. He he reminds me a little bit of of Neil Young in the sense where. You know, Neil Young's been kind of knocked around too for for not having the greatest voice, but it, it's it's lyrics that that a lot of times you know will will drive his songs as well, and and in Bob Dylan as well. You know, uh, I I think that's you know probably you know places where he's he's taken influence, and um, you know this is an, an interesting record. Um, definitely one of those where you when you sit down and get into the lyrical content you know it's 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 very 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 good um and uh Mm -hmm. you know just you know a lot of the the instrumentation like there's some really great mandolin playing on this and um you know like you said some some trumpet and and, you know i think even some flute here Mm -hmm. and there where you're just like you know okay this he's got all kinds of stuff going on. And I mean, it's, it makes for great music, even though it's, you know, in a pop sense, like, you know, like you said, his, his voice is, is it's, it's very whiny at times, almost, you know, irritating or not irritating. That's not the right word. Very neurotic. Um, you know, and, and that, like I said, if you, if you just focus on that, I mean, you won't really get it. Uh, yeah. But if you focus on what he's saying, and even in the way he's saying it, I mean it—it it comes across a whole lot better.
1: Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and his lyrics, you know, really—if you try to focus on his lyrics, his lyrics are very meaningful, very deep, and uh, often, you know, sort of wry and tongue-in-cheek, and and sometimes um, scathing, really. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, there's this one line from the first piece that we're going to listen to. Uh, we are nowhere and it's now um, where he says uh, and if you swear that there's no truth and who cares, how come you say it like you're right? <laughs> you, you know, there's a lot of different, a lot of layers of meaning in, in just that little, that, that one that little, little snippet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and really, you know, it's, it's, it's chock full of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, you can spend a lot of time just sort of, listening to his words and and sort of thinking about what they mean you know and just that just little snippets and then the next one will have a whole different uh layers <laughs> that you can contemplate and you know so um yeah and i, I just like you said Emmy Lou Harris she's great on this track she adds such a great dimension to the music and the trumpet on this track is fantastic what what did you think of we are nowhere and it's now
2: Just just really great mix of, like you said, of of music and lyrical content. And, uh, you know, Emmylou Harris, is, she's just one of those people that, I mean, I I love her voice and I, I just love her style, even her stage presence. I mean, she just walks on the stage and it's just like the room just stops. You know, everybody's just focused on her. I mean, just a gorgeous lady. A gorgeous voice. I mean, even now, I mean, if you you see her like, you know, on on anything today, I mean, she just has just has this presence about her. And I mean, you know, getting her on this record is 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 pretty pretty cool. I mean, she she yeah. makes really good chemistry with with everything that goes on on this record. I mean, it's it, it's kind of country, but but kind of midwestern and definitely folk. Um, you know, just just really, it's it's not a, a music that I I listen to a lot, um, but I mean it, it's it's definitely something worth listening to. I mean if you're especially if you're into lyrical content, I mean you know really really smart. You know, at at times very sarcastic, and I would even say smart assed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, just just an, a very interesting listen. I mean, and this and this track is 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 really nice. I really like it.
1: Cool, man. Let's check it out. This is We Are Nowhere, and it's now.
0: If you hate the taste of wine, what do you drink it till you're blind? And if you swear that there's no truth, and who cares? Like you're right Why are you scared To dream of God When it's salvation that You want You see stars that clear Have been dead for years But the idea just lives on In our wheels that roll around As we move over And all day it seems we've been in between a past and future town We are nowhere and it's now We are nowhere and it's now In like a ten minute dream in the passenger seat While the world was flying Been, been gone very long what But it feels, feels like a lifetime I've been sleeping so strange at night Side effects they don't advertise I've been sleeping so strange With a head full of pesticides
1: And we just heard We Are Nowhere and It's Now from Bright Eyes And we're going to move on to their song Landlocked Blues And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, all this stuff that this music is like This one, I'd say, almost even has an Irish quality to it Mm. Um, you know he's it seems like you know when you when you hear when you listen to his words in this one it seems like he's talking about a lot of different stuff with each verse but it kind of at the same time it seems like he's talking about the same thing like he's talking about sort of one overarching concept but within all these different kinds of situations Um, and there's a lot going on here I mean there's a lot of anti-war stuff in this song but you know, as pertains to what's going on right now in the world, you know, this was released in 2005. Uh, you know, when the Iraqi war was going big time, and yeah, we were going into Afghanistan and all this stuff. Um, in one of the sections of the song, which I'm going to play uh, uh, as part of the excerpt, the lyrics kind of really caught my attention. He said, um, "But greed is a bottomless pit." And our freedom's a joke. We're just taking a piss, and the whole world must watch the sad comics display. If you're still free, start running away. And then he yells, "Cause we're coming for you!" And then right after that, the trumpet player uh, Nate Walcott plays this sort of upbeat version of Taps mm. on the trumpet. <laughs> you know, and it's just uh, like you said. It's sort of sardonic and smartass, but also really kind of profound. And, um, it really kind of, it doesn't pull any punches, you know, it just, it goes, goes right for the stomach, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I would, you know, I would say, you know, his, his, his protest, I mean, in, in song, so to speak, I mean, you, you know, you could kind of take it one way or the other. I mean, because I mean, at that time, you know, a lot of people were, you know, obviously very disillusioned by you know the the politics and things that were going on overseas and i mean you know I, I i think in in songwriting especially when when it it comes to a song like this i mean it's 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 very necessary i mean you know if you if you see something you don't like you know when it comes to you know society or government or whatever you know go ahead and say it you know because there there are times where things need to be said you know especially if you you know everybody sees it and everybody's thinking the same thing but people at times are just they're they're scared to say it you know because of how they feel like people are going to react and and I'm I'm sure people you know kind of gave him some flack you know for things that he said and a lot of his stuff but you know Well
1: I'm pretty sure that that uh these kind of lyrics would not go over well in his home state of Nebraska Yeah. yeah. But um that may be part of why you know his views are so strong? You know when when you live in a place that's so American, over and yeah, over on on sort of one side of a viewpoint. Yeah, then the people on the other side can can react really strongly against it. You know, um, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. You want to check this out?
2: Yeah let's let's go ahead and listen to it.
1: Okay, this is the last track from Bright Eyes. This is Landlocked Blues
0: made love on the living room floor with the noise in the background from a televised war and in that deafening pleasure I thought I heard someone say if we walk away they'll walk away but greed is a bottomless pit and our freedom's a joke, we're just taking a piss. And the whole world must watch the sad comic display. If you're still free, start running away. Cause we're coming for you. I feel more like a stranger each time I come home So I'm making a deal with the devils of fame Saying let me walk away, please You'll be free, child, once you have died The shackles of language, immeasurable time And then we can trade places, play musical grace Till then walk away, walk away, walk away, walk away away. So I'm up back down Putting on my shoes I just want to make a clean escape i'm leaving but i don't
3: know where to i know i'm leaving but
0: i
1: don't know where to and we just heard landlocked blues by bright eyes and we're going to move on to again something totally different benjamin Britten, his opera peter grimes this recording was released in 1978 uh, this uh, features John Vickers, Heather Harper, and the Royal Opera House Orchestra, conducted by Sir Colin Davis. Uh, but the piece was uh written oh, Peter Grimes, I think, was written in the 40s, um, uh, around maybe 43. I can't remember the exact date. Uh,
2: but, 19, no, it was first performed in 1945. Um, but I think you're right, I think it's 1943 when he when he wrote it okay. uh, there's a lot going on in, in this opera
1: <laughs> well yeah i mean a, a little about britain you know britain is one of the major composers of britain of the 20th century he lived from 1913 to 1976 and uh man with this, what a tragic story this is yeah uh yeah. P- peter grimes what a uh, just a sort of loathsome tragic character and this was a a theme in all of benjamin britten's really in all of his operas you know they they centered around some kind of tragic outcast of a you know of a character and uh britten himself you know uh this this sort of reflected britten himself britten was gay in a time when you know homophobia was so bad that you could barely even come out really yeah especially
2: I mean you know yeah especially then where he was too I mean it was like a a Um, no-no
1: and uh, you know there was I think throughout Britain's life you know he felt a kinship with these characters you know these outcasts that society doesn't understand and and you know, puts down and, uh, you know, tries to sort of snuff out just because they're, they're, they may not be the same as them. And, uh, you know, Britain was openly gay for, for his entire life. I mean, he, uh, wrote this opera and wrote the main part of Peter Grimes for his life partner, Peter Pears, um, who they were together, from a pretty young age, throughout their entire lives, um, and uh, so you know this this opera. Um, just just to sort of talk a little bit about about the story and try to put it in a as much of a nutshell as I can. Um, Peter Grimes, he lives uh, in this English fishing village, and uh, he. Apparently, at one point, the the opera starts uh, in court, right? At this inquisition, because apparently Peter Grimes had this young apprentice. And while they were out fishing uh, at sea, uh, there was a storm that blew them off course. And the apprentice died because they ran out of drinking water, right? So, So Peter Grimes is in court. All the people in the town are in court. They're sort of calling for Grimes's head. But the magistrate is like, you know, this this wasn't Peter's fault. You know, it was uh, an accidental death. And, uh, you know, he lets him go. And uh, so act one starts where basically, um, you know, the the village people all hate Peter Grimes and and they sort of shun him and and, uh, you know, call him bad names and all these stuff. Yeah, but he's got a few, uh, you know, a few advocates. So one is this school uh, mistress. Another one is this former sea captain and the school mistress um, is sort of defending him, you know, to the villagers and all this stuff, you know, leave him alone and you guys don't understand him and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, um, they find a new apprentice for him and uh, he takes the apprentice back to his place. And the next, or on the next Sunday morning, um, the apprentice is sitting around with the schoolmistress as people are going into church. The schoolmistress notices there's a bruise on the kid's neck. And, uh, you know, when this happens, Peter Grimes shows up to take the kid out fishing, and the schoolmistress sort of confronts him on it. And basically, uh, Peter Grimes just sort of hits her and knocks her down and drags the kid off to go fishing. Well, the, a bunch of people in the church see this happen and a bunch of people kind of get together and decide to go confront Peter Grimes. So when they do, when they're approaching Peter Grimes's hut or whatever, um he sort of, you know, rushes the kid out the back door in a hurry, and apparently the the house is sitting like up on a cliff overlooking the sea. The kid loses his footing and falls down the cliff and dies. Mm. <laughs> so, um, not good. Yeah, so not good at all. So, but then you know, Grimes takes off. The people show up at his house. They don't find anything, so they all leave. But then you know, they discover the kid's jacket or whatever, and they discover that he's missing. And uh, a mob forms again. They're coming after him. Uh, the old sea captain tells. a a crazed Peter Grimes at this point, Peter Grimes is sort of ranting and and delirious, tells Peter Grimes to sail his boat out to sea and sink it. And that's what Peter Grimes does. He's he sails his boat out to sea. And then the final scene, uh, a Coast Guard person comes and, you know, reports to the people that the Coast Guard had, had reported a boat, Sinking offshore, but no one listens to him because no one cares, and that's mm, that's yeah. that's the end.
2: <laughs> Talk about tragic opera.
1: Um. Yeah, uh, so that's how the opera goes, um, and we're going to listen to one of the pieces from Act Two called "Fool to Let It Come to This," and this is basically the part where you know after they see um, Peter Grimes smack. The schoolmistress and take off with the kid. This is the part where they're sort of all talking about it and talking about forming a mob to go confront Peter Grimes. So that's what this piece is. Okay.
2: Um, um I I I have something that I was wondering about. The opening scene where where he's in court, where they're they're basically, you know, trying to figure out what happened with um, you know, his first apprentice. It it almost seemed as if this was not something that it was like Sorry. the first time. And I hate telemarketers. Um this was not like the first time that this had happened, you know, even in the opening scene, like they were they were already kind of leery of him. Uh and I might be wrong. I'm not. I'm not really sure about that. I mean, I, I kind of read. No, you read... could be
1: right. You could. I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's definitely. You know, this guy is someone who, like I said, is an outcast. Who's someone who people don't understand and who has who have shunned. And I think because he's shunned and misunderstood, that he's become sort of bitter and angry and towards yeah. people and sort of become this sort of solitary hermit. And again, this ties into a lot of, you know, how Britain felt, you know, about himself and society. And I don't, you know, Benjamin Britain wasn't a person like as extreme as Peter Grimes. But, you know, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. And and I mean, I think, too, also, he he kind of wanted to play to the issue of how when you have a person whose mind is made up, no matter what the actual facts are, let alone a mob of people who have a, a made up mind about something. You know, it's it's very hard to turn them. And um, you know, sometimes the the harder they get, you know, the harder it is, you know, on that person, you know, so to speak, or the the individual they're focused on. And I mean he 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 kind of says that here uh when he when he talks about the opera, when they asked him about the, I guess the the subject matter of it or or what they they thought about his play on it. He said that, you know, the 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 struggle between or the struggle of the individual against the masses, the more vicious the society, the more vicious the individual. And I mean, obviously, you know, as as they kind of, you know, accuse him, you know, and, and come after him more and more, he gets, you know, obviously much more aggravated and and angry and um you know it's just like you know you know leave me alone why don't you guys believe me i mean i i didn't do anything i mean not deliberately anyway and i, I guess that's just kind of how he he himself you know was was feeling you know throughout his life um i mean yeah. it's especially i mean in i mean i mean it was just one of those places where i mean you you were very, very ostracized, I imagine, for for being gay, and I mean, especially at that time, you know, just, you know, I'm sure it was really hard on him.
1: Yeah, me. yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it would be, I'm sure, it'd be uh, difficult even now, but I mean, yeah, yeah, back then, man, yeah, it must have been very, very difficult. So, well, yeah, let's check this out. Um, this first track from Benjamin Britten's opera Peter Grimes. This is from Act 2, Fool to Let It Come to This. And we just heard fool to let it come to this from act two. And we're going to move on to one of the orchestral instrumental interludes um, that pop up in this opera. Um, these C interludes that, uh, that Britain called them. Um, this one is called evening uh, from the beginning of act three. And uh, this is unusual for opera. One, a couple unusual things about this opera. There's, there's no overture, which the overture, is something that's uh standard to opera. It's like a opening piece, like an opening instrumental piece that introduces usually introduces a lot of the musical themes and stuff that you're going to hear over the course of the opera. Um and uh, there's no overture to this. So <clears throat> this opera just it just just kind of starts, you know? There's there's no pomp and circumstance or overture, it just just kind of starts. Um but there are these You know, pretty substantial, long um, orchestral interludes, which which is also something that's unusual. And you know, I tried to find out the function of these interview uh, of these interludes within the opera. You know, how did they function? You know, were they meant to cover up scene changes, or were they meant to? You know, what was the purpose of these interludes?
2: That's a very good question. I'm trying to imagine what, what's going on on stage. I mean, are they just kind of sitting there and looking into the, you know, audience or just looking into the sky? Or, right. Yeah. You know, it was
1: like, is, is the curtain drawn? Is there like no one on stage while this is going on or what's going on? Because I've, I've actually never seen this opera. Um, so, hey, if someone out there can tell me definitively, you know, what this is. I, I looked, you know, and I couldn't really find uh, – any explanation but you know one thing i got from this it, it, the one we're going to listen to is called evening and uh, this particular one is really just kind of beautiful and haunting i mean it almost has this kind of peaceful feeling with these uh you know melodic lines they're kind of like steady waves rolling in you know um and th- you know at first i thought it was odd because you know, to stick something like this right in the middle of all this turmoil and stuff that's going on in the opera. You know, they're after Peter Grimes's head. You know, the, the, this apprentice has died. His second apprentice has died, and and uh, you know, Peter Grimes is going crazy. And to, to, in the midst of all this, to get this beautiful, peaceful instrumental piece in the middle of it. And I think what's going on here is that. You know, these are moments of kind of moments of repose that reflect on the ocean itself. You know, this, this kind of giant force of nature that, that's always there, sort of unaffected by these events that are going on in the village and and this sort of mighty monument of nature that's, that's just always there and, and is unaffected. I, I don't know. That's no, kind that, of what I got from it.
2: That's a good way to look at it. I, Again, when I first listened to this, <coughs> Excuse me, and, and thought about it. I mean, like you said, very beautiful, lush strings. I love the um, yeah the string arrangement on this is is really really wonderful. But I was trying, like you said, I was trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. You I know, mean, they are they just you know doing nothing, or you know, I mean, I like you said, I, I would kind of like to find out. I mean, you know. Not the big opera honk, obviously, but I'm I'm curious too to find out, you know, what what's going on during the interlude. You know, is it like you said? Is it just dark? Is it you know a set change or or just people kind of going back and forth or, or who know who knows? Um, yeah,
1: well, yeah, you know, because the you know with with opera and you know this this is uh, unique to opera and classical music. With opera, you know, the story and the drama and whatever is going on in the story can affect heavily affect the music going on on stage and can can cause a composer to write music that they would never have otherwise written. Yeah. Um, you know, I just heard a uh, an example of that, um, and this is this is crazy. I still think it's crazy, but a friend of mine, an actual friend of mine, uh, Kevin puts um, a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that he he won the Pulitzer Prize in music this year. Hmm. And And wow. uh, yeah, I know. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but he he won it for um this this opera that he wrote. That's uh set in World War One, and uh, NPR put it up like the entire opera to listen to for free. And so I'm listening to it, and the opera opens. You, you know with his overture. And it sounds like, you know, music that would be written like now, 2012. But then all of a sudden it goes into this music that sounds like it's from the 17th century, like Mozart's time. And then the singers come in and it sounds like Mozart. I'm thinking, what is this? You know, like, but there's a reason in the story for this. And, you know, I know Kevin's music, you know, he's never written music that sounds like Mozart before, but You know, the story, the action on stage, the drama called or he felt called for writing something like this, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and not the entire opera doesn't sound like that. But, you know, I'm just saying this one part and it it can, you know, cause the composer to do all sorts of things that they would never have otherwise done. So um, it's, it's important to. You know, if you really want to understand this stuff, to actually watch the opera, you know, not just do what what we did. Yeah, and just, just listen to tracks and just listen to tracks and sort of wonder what's going on, you know. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else you want to say about this before we play it? Oh,
2: oh one more thing I wanted to talk about when I was I was reading. Uh, apparently, this this was a, a lot of it was inspired by a, a poem called "The Burrow" by uh, George Crabb. Uh, for those who are into poetry, and uh, I am not really, but you know, I, I was kind of looking at, at him, and apparently, Lord Byron, who you know, you know, a lot of people know Lord Byron. If, if you do, he was inspired by you know Crab's poetry in a, in a big way. So, um, uh, I guess a lot of the major inspiration for this came from from George Crabbe, who I'm I'm now trying to, you know, get into and listen to, or not listen to, read about uh so to speak but um yeah definitely you know very 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 sad it's almost like it's almost like frankenstein <laughs> you know where you have this angry mob coming after you know the misunderstood so called monster you know who yeah yeah just lashes out when people you know you know jack with him i mean you know, if, I mean I, I mean i imagine i would i would be the same way and i mean you know I, I guess it's, it's just a, a a sort of stark example of, of how you know the the persecuted have to sort of come to a, a very sad end you know but um anyway let's go ahead I guess and, and listen to the the last track from this um cool it's uh what the interlude uh-huh uh uh from act three uh this Peter Grimes, uh, interlude. I think that's, that's how you would say it.
1: (laughs) Uh Yeah. It's, it's called evening evening. All right. Yeah.
2: just listened to Evening, uh, the interlude uh, from the Peter Grimes opera, um, the very last, is this the last uh, Last yeah, record? Yeah, uh, uh, we're going to talk about uh, Big Bill Brunzi, um, and uh, Bill Brunzi was a blues artist, uh, guitar player uh, Chicago and the, the title of this record, uh, was young Bill Brunsy, 1928 through 1935. Um, kind of sounds, uh, bluesy, but also kind of ragtime sound to, uh, Mm -hmm. this record as well. Uh, really good mix of, 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 blues, acoustic guitar and, and piano on this, uh, very 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 uh very good record um i uh, i'd never heard of bill Brunzi before this uh i don't know if you had or not um
1: uh, i had heard of him before but uh I'd never heard him
2: so. yeah this is this is definitely new to me um i guess uh big in chicago i mean as, as far as blues obviously chicago is the place you know and uh, came up and uh, apparently uh, recommended that uh, the label signed at the time uh, unknown Muddy Waters, which I I did not know that.
1: Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. He he apparently pushed to have them record Muddy Waters. Yeah.
2: And um, you know, like I said, uh, you know, very very good mix of blues, but uh, also kind of uh you know the, the ragtime sound of, of the piano and and the way they mix and the the sound of the music is 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 somewhat I guess what you would think of as as kind of you know rural or country sounding but the when I listen to the lyrics of of these songs especially I guess uh I think the first song we're gonna listen to is uh good liquor gonna carry me down uh yeah. is that the that's the first one. That is not country at all. I, I would imagine that's, or rural at all. That's, that sounds more, more of a, a city sort of urban
1: yeah, I agree. sound to yeah. it.
2: I mean, I mean, lyrically, I mean, he, he was, he was a reveler, I guess, or, or at least, you know, in his, in his lyrics he was, <laughs> I mean,
1: yeah. This, this song
2: I mean he's I mean he's drinking and drinking and drinking some more yeah you know <laughs>
1: yeah like, I kind of listen to it I'm kind of like thinking I hope this is just a song and this isn't how I really live but <laughs> um, yeah this is a duet with pianist Georgia Tom or, or Thomas Dorsey I guess yeah um and it's yeah you're right it's just like in the songs sort of all this stuff happens and people give him advice and people give him warnings and he just keeps on drinking that's what the song is <laughs>
2: yeah and i mean obviously that's a <coughs> a reoccurring subject in a lot of blues over the years yeah um, but uh yeah and the, and the way he does it, i mean it it's it's almost a jolly you know presentation i mean it, yeah. it i mean it, it has a blues element but it he doesn't sound mi- i mean most people when they're they're drinking this much i mean they're pretty pretty miserable but not this guy i mean mean, he sounds sounds, very happy about it (laughs) so Uh i i I guess the 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 thing about it too is um you know he i think he was from mississippi um and and obviously brought you know some of the the delta blues sound you know on to chicago and um you know, from what I understand, I mean, Mississippi back in the days, I mean, you know, obviously everything is, is still, you know, segregated. and um, You know, the, the, the way things were in Mississippi as compared to Chicago, I mean, the, you weren't going to do too much hell raising without, you know, having the so-called local authorities, you know, roll on you. So, but I mean, Chicago, I mean, it was, I guess it was a lot more, you know, Liberal in a sense, to where you know you had juke joints and and people partying because I imagine people partied everywhere, you know. But it was it was probably not as as strict as it was I'd imagine in Mississippi. So I mean, you know, that's one thing that that I kind of was thinking about as I as I read this, um, where you know he came from an area where you know the the things that are going on this song were kind of you know not as prevalent um, but you know it, it's just kind of like an aside that I, I thought about what what did you think about uh about uh I guess this this song as as a whole I mean what, what did you think about it
1: about good liquor gonna carry me down yeah um well one thing that uh, I think is interesting about this is uh apparently this this was recorded in 1934. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, and prohibition ended in
2: 1933.
1: Oh, so I think that's that's one big thing about this. You know, is is uh, it could have had a big impact at the time because, you know, prohibition uh, lasted from I think 1919 to 1933. That's a long time. Yeah, and people were being told you know they they couldn't drink; it was illegal to drink. And now all of a sudden, prohibition is, is repealed. And the whole song is about, I don't care what you say, I don't care what you do, I don't care what you tell me, I'm going to keep on drinking. Yeah, and it, it must have had a whole other meaning, you know?
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I didn't even think about the issue of prohibition. Yeah, that's that definitely adds a, a whole new spin on this song.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs>
1: so uh i would say you know and and like you said you know he sounds very happy about it i think people were ecstatic about being able to drink again and and uh it is it's almost like a a song that sounds very liberating so and i think it was Mm. at the time um so yeah you want to just check it out
2: yeah let's listen to it
1: okay this is uh big bill brunzi with good liquor gonna carry me down (laughs) drinking and I will satisfy your soul but I just
0: keep on drinking yes I keep on drinking yeah I just keep on drinking till good liquor carry me down that my woman told me
2: about fifteen years ago, till you gonna drink one these mornings, and you never drink no more. But I will just keep on a drinking. Yes,
0: I keep on drinking. Yeah, I just keep on a drinking till good liquor carry me down. Now I wake up in the
3: morning. Holdin' a bottle tight. When I lay down at night, Mama gets
2: a gallon out of sight
0: because I just keep on a drinking. Yes, I keep on drinking. Now I just keep on drinking. Tell good liquor carry
1: me down. And we just heard good liquor going to carry me down, and we're going to move back uh, to the late 20s. And his uh, his song "Pig Meat Strut," and this is kind of an instrumental. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like it's two two guitars. I, I have no idea who the other player is or or anything, but um, this is just kind of a a real lively um, blues, but also a lot of ragtime in here um, piece. And you know, with him sort of periodically. You can hear him you know vocalizing you know do that pig meat strut and all this stuff and but mm. just playing and so this is a track i thought was cool because you know you really get to hear brunzi play his guitar you know yeah uh yeah what did you think of this
2: just just a really good uh example of, of of his skill and and the the chemistry between him and and like you said the other player like you said i I, I hear another guitar too, unless they I now mean, they maybe did an overdub or whatever. I don't I don't know, but more likely it's probably probably just the one shot where they. I, I don't think they did an overdub. It's probably somebody else playing, and then the the ragtime sound of of the piano and 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 the the kind of banter between the two. I it it, it makes for a great instrumental piece and and let you kind of hear you know what what he could do and and um you know just just a just a great track um you know kind of kind of lively and um as I look at him I, I'm i I'm recognizing something I mean this is off the subject of the song we have the same birthday um oh really yeah he was I mean obviously not the year but but he was born <laughs> on a On on the same birthday as I, and I was like, oh, isn't that something? You know, but um, you know, just and and I, he he's he's a very very laid back. Uh, He never seems to to get too 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 excited uh, on any of these tracks that I listen to. Just just kind of calm and 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 deliberate and 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 very smooth and yeah. Um, I mean, it kind of Brunsy kind of kind of has that that sound to it you know when you say that you know just <laughs> not true. not too not too uh, you know excited about anything just this let me just sit here and play my guitar you know uh seems like a pretty pretty dapper guy too looking at all the pictures of him in mean, oh, yeah. chicago i mean those i mean the blues men in chicago i mean they all were i mean they had just very sharp sharp looks about them you know for the most part yeah. and, and he he definitely you know kind of falls into that tradition um Mm-hmm. but uh you know i i i like um the way this sounds uh um, the the piano kind of is 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 reminiscent I like of Scott Joplin and, and a lot of the the so-called ragtime players of that day and and that that's something I really get into a lot um you know especially when the 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 way the recordings sound the older recordings it's it's, it's really nice to hear the playing in in some of the performers where there were so some guys they were just they were so great um at the way they played ragtime piano i love the way that sounds
1: mm-hmm. yeah that, that's cool you share i mean that's a cool person to share a birthday with yeah I, I, I share a birthday with david hasselhoff so oh there you go <laughs> um that's not quite as cool but uh. yeah, yeah I, I like david <laughs> Hasselhoff. <laughs> and germans uh, do too well yeah absolutely they do um, there are probably a lot of Germans, you know you know, really wondering why the Hof isn't in the one thousand recordings to hear before you die, but um, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, let's check this out. This track from uh, Big Bill Brunzi. This is Pig Meat Strike. <laughs> And we just heard pig meat strut by big bill Brunsey, and that's going to do it for episode number 27 of the 1000 recordings podcast if you'd like to send us an email send one to 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can join us on twitter at twitter.com slash 1000 rp you can join us at our website where we have links to all the albums that we play to purchase um, and that is 1000rp.blogspot.com Um, You can also join us on our Twitter feeds. Mine is um, twitter.com slash Anthony Landman. Do you want to give your Twitter feed out?
2: Uh, It is MLDtweet at twitter.com. And it's it's capital M, capital L, capital D, capital T, and then, you know, wheat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then uh, you can join us on Facebook and uh, sort of, you know, interact with us there. Um, as far as next week, let's see, what do we got coming next week?
2: Uh, Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers. Uh, that is, I think, one title we're going to be looking at. That's uh, what you would call, I guess, go-go music, uh, heavy on the percussion, almost almost hip-hop influence. Chuck Brown... Uh, I know it had a a major hit back in the, I guess, in the early 80s, maybe late 70s, called Bustin' Loose. That was, I I still love that song. Um, But Chuck Brown and Soul Searchers, uh, Any Other Way to Go, uh, with the go-go sound. Um, Clifford Brown and Max Roach, um, with uh, Clifford Brown, Max Roach, Quintet, uh, Max Roach, uh, Jazz Giant. Drummer extraordinaire. Um, that should be fun. Mm-hmm. And then three titles from The Godfather. Uh, James Brown. Um,
1: yeah, that'd be cool.
2: Yeah, Live at the Apollo, Soul Pride, The Instrumentals, which is just is killer. And uh, Sex Machine uh, from James Brown and the JB. So uh, can't wait to get into the Godfather
1: next yeah, week yeah that'll be that'll be awesome oh, and one uh, one little preview for a couple weeks from now uh, since we were talking about Benjamin Britten on this episode we're gonna have another Benjamin Britten piece in a couple weeks I oh, won't wow. say what album it's from but uh, yep we're gonna be hearing some more Britain so okay cool <laughs> um, but yeah that'll be cool next week I'm looking forward to getting into all the James Brown yeah it's and, gonna be uh, fun yeah, so um, that is it for this week, man.
2: Yeah, one thing I want to talk about, and a lot of people probably you know know about this is a uh, uh, Beastie Boy Adam oh, of course. Adam Yow, MCA yeah. passed away on a Friday. Um, it was very very unusual in a sense that I took that a little harder than uh, than I because I knew he he had he had cancer and, and had been kind of sick for a while. I didn't even know that. Yeah, he um, it was like in his salivary glands uh, of all places. And I I'd heard about that years ago and and they were they were kind of making like it was in remission. Um, But when he passed away, I I took that a little. I was really surprised at how I took that kind of hard. I mean, you know, I, I never really had met him face to face seen the Beastie Boys several times live, always a really good live. But I think what happened, I I started having all these memories associated with with that group from my youth. I mean, I've listened to them for so long. Mm -hmm. I mean, and seen them, you know, change from, you know, these scruffy Jewish kids from New York that played this really loud, snotty, obnoxious punk rock music to this really, really tight, band that, that was really good at improvising on a lot of different musical styles and you know M- MCA is one of those guys that he had a lot of different you know social causes I mean he was real big on you know the Free Tibet movement and you know just various social ills that he would speak out on here and there and I mean that guy's really going to be missed I, I have a lot of respect for him and the Beastie Boys um you know the it, it's just one of those things like i said when it when i first found out he 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 passed it was it was really sad to me and i i'm i'm grateful for for their influence on my life um obviously we talked about paul's boutique earlier this year i mean you know just uh just a, a very sad uh the passing of mca um you know just thoughts go out to his his family and and the rest of the beastie boys, um, you know, just, uh, you know, big up to MCA just love the guy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well said. Um, I'm, I'm glad you remembered to bring that up. I, I was gonna talk about it and then I just, I'm sort of in a, in a rush to get somewhere. I totally understand, dude. I I know you got stuff to do. um, (laughs) But yeah, man, we can, uh, we could even have a moment of silence for, for Mr. Yowk.
2: Yeah. Just
1: so, yeah, let's just have a moment of silence right now. And that is going to do it for this week.
2: Hey, Tony, uh, great talking to you again this week. Uh, it's been fun.
1: Uh, can't wait till next week all right yeah me too man so cool. uh i will see you and everybody later next all week right. for some uh some new tracks all right.
2: bye everybody have a great week